is not quenched. Having our attention turned to that burning bush, approaching a section of John's gospel in which we feel as though we gaze upon a unique display of the glory and goodness of Christ. Next few chapters, we're going to learn things about our glorious Savior that are unique, presented in peculiar ways by his apostle John. It's all part of what is known as the upper room discourse brought to us by Jesus to his apostles. He, Jesus, is just hours from his death. Within 24 hours, he will be buried in a borrowed tomb, having died being with his father, his dead body laying in the cold darkness. But before that hour comes, he has ministry to do. Before he's ushered away to face that dark hour of dying for us, he spends some few final hours with his disciples. John uniquely records that in chapters 13 through 17. I've told you from the beginning of our study through the gospel of John that his gospel account is quite unique from the other three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. He's given us a, a more deeply theological exposition of the, the person and the work of Christ. He's given us the, the theological backdrop to all that he accomplished in his person and his work. And he, he himself tells us why he does that. He writes that we might believe that Jesus of Nazareth is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and that by believing we might have life in his name, John 20 Verse 31, and so indeed we see this picture of Jesus in these chapters. He is indeed the Christ, the Son of the living God, in ways presented here that we have not previously seen. John 13, verse 1, the apostle records this. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and, taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do, just as I have done to you. 
Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I am telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. Would you pray with me as we dive into the word together? Father in heaven, thank you for the rhythm and the pattern of deep study of your word. Thank you for giving us this book by which you reveal yourself and the manifold displays of your glory and your wisdom especially as now seen in the face of your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We ask that you would do with your word in our hearts what you've promised to do. Make it a mirror by which we see the filth of our own soul. Make it that cleansing wash over which we, pours over our soul and we know the cleansing power of your spirit. Make it a hammer that falls upon the hardest of hearts and breaks it to pieces. Make it to be that sword carefully handled which divides to the the deepest intersecting point of the human existence. Flay us open with your word. Help us to see and know and understand your truth. Have minds renewed and hearts and affections changed. Make us more like your son as we see him in all of his glory. So Father, would you bless the next few minutes as we seek to understand this section of your word. Help us, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. It's often been observed that John has two sections to his gospel. The first section has a prologue in chapters 1, verses 1 through 18, and then from 119 through chapter 12 and verse 50, you have what is often called the book of signs, in which Jesus does seven miraculous or supernatural signs and he will explain the sign either ahead of time or give an example explanation after the sign so an example of this would be in john 8 when he said i am the light of the world and then in john 9 he came across a man born blind from birth and he shed light into that man's life physically giving him sight but then spiritually giving him birth from above he did a supernatural sign and then he explained it This second book we turn to now in chapter 13 is often called the book of passion or the book of glory. Jesus goes from public to private. He goes from miraculous signs and powerful teaching to private instruction and intensive care for his 12 apostles, soon to only be 11 left in the room. And we, through the apostle John, get an invitation into the room. We get to see, expose the heart and the mind of our Savior. Not just the power and the the majesty of his teaching, but the inner man of Jesus is here exposed in John 13 through 17. From chapters 13 to 19, we'll span just 24 hours in the life of Jesus. It's his final day, his final minutes here as the servant king. This is holy ground. For us, friend, take off your spiritual sandals and tread carefully. 
I want to focus our attention on the first 11 verses of our section this morning. And in those 11 verses, we see the bright, shining glory of our servant, Savior. He has hidden his glory from the unbelieving world. He, he offered them one last time at the end of chapter 12 that if they believe in him, they will not perish. And then he hid from them. He went away from them. They rejected his glory. And so he went away and hid from them and went into the upper room so that he could expose more of his glory to his apostles. That starts right away in our text. We see his glory in his love, in his supremacy, in his humility, and in his cleansing power. Consider first the glory of our Savior in the love of our Savior. See that right away in verse 1. John does not give us the, the details about the Passover meal. He doesn't even tell us about the institution of the Lord's Supper like Matthew, Mark, and Luke had done. He simply transitions from the public discourse of chapter 12 to the inner private conversation of the upper room in chapter 13. He is here, Jesus is here eating the Passover meal with his disciples. And as we ascend the steps into this upper room, we enter to find Jesus with 12 other men. Likely they're the only men in the room, 13 men gathered together in this upper room celebrating the Jewish feast of Passover, remembering God's power in ages past to rescue his people from Egyptian control. As we enter into that room, John gives us a word of prologue, a word before the word. He did that in chapter 1. He told us before he got into the details of the life of Jesus, he said, the word was with God. He went on to explain that the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and that the, the word came as the only God to exegete God to us, John 1.18. And then he went in John 1.19 into the, the preaching of John the Baptist. And now we have here a prologue to the rest of John's gospel, when he says in verse 1, now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world he loved them to the end. This is the header over which all the other chapters flow. Everything which follows comes out of these headwaters. Jesus knew that he had come into the world for a set time. He knew that hour was approaching for him to depart out of this world. He knew he had loved those who were his, who were in the world, and he was committed to loving them to the end. Everything you read from chapters 13, verse 2, through the end of 21 is all about this loving them to the end. He loved them to the end. We know from Scripture that there's a general love of God for all of mankind. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, John 3. But there's a specific love that Jesus here displays for his own, as he says, he loved his own who were in the world, and he loved them to the end. He describes those as his own in John 6 and John 10, as those given to him by the Father. And specifically in our context, it's these 12 who are in the upper room with him. Notice the context of this love of the Savior. In other words, what are the, the surrounding realities of this love displayed in John 13? Well, he's come to the hour of his glorification, his cross work at Calvary. He's in the final hours of his mission. 
He's coming down the home stretch. He can see the finish line. He's about to complete his task. He's taking his last lap. He's running his final steps of the race. How easy to focus his attention singularly on his task to go and offer himself as the Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world. And in that context, John wants you to know that he loved his own who were in the world and he loved them to the end. That's an astounding context. Notice also the commitment of this love. He was committed to loving them to the end or you could say he was committed to loving them to the full or wholly or completely. The Greek word being telos, you've heard that before brought to its end, brought to its completion, but also in the context, meaning to the end of the matter. So both ideas are here. He's loved them completely, and he's loved them to the end of the matter. He's he's loved them in every possible way. And he's loved them to the completion of the progress of him giving his life for them. So here in this final hour, he's not about to shift his focus away from the very thing that sent him into the manger in Bethlehem. The thing that Philippians 2 describes compelled him to not consider it robbery, not to consider it something to be grasped onto, to to cling to the full expression of his deity, but to, to lay it aside, that full expression, and enter into humanity born in the likeness of men, born as a servant of men. He humbled himself because he loved us. So even though the dark storm cloud of the cross is building on the horizon of the life of Jesus, he is committed to loving them to the end. And then consider the contrast of that love. We find that in verse 2. The dark cloth behind which this beautiful diamond of Christ's love is displayed is the hate-filled heart of Judas. We already learned in chapter 12 that Judas was a thief that he was mad about the anointing of Mary of Jesus' feet because he wanted to take that perfume and sell it and have his hand in the money. But here we learn in chapter 13 that it's more than just Judas, and that's somewhat comforting to us. That to hatch such a a wicked and awful plot as the betrayal of our Lord, which would lead to his death, took more than just a wicked human heart. It took the plottings and the plannings of his arch enemy from eternity past, Satan himself. John says in chapter 2, he cast into the heart. He put it into the heart. He was fishing in the heart of Judas. He was throwing his lures into the heart of Judas, giving him ideas, seeing which one would stick. We already know from chapter 12, he's already got the plan of betrayal working in his mind. Satan's already been at work, but here it's going to start to take more form in his heart. This is what Satan does. He throws seeds of evil plots into wicked men's hearts, lures them to use them as useful pawns in his age-old war against the God of heaven. That's exactly what we see happening here with Judas and his interaction with Jesus. He's already made a deal with the Sanhedrin to turn Jesus over at an apropos time when he would be away from the crowds. 
He's already aligned it with them that, that when I have a time to get him away from people who would be upset with you arresting him, I will let you know. That's already set up. Now here it is in this moment, Satan speaking into the, the heart and mind of Judah saying, now's the time. Now's the time. You know where he's at. The crowd is gone. You're in this private place. Now's the time. Go to the Sanhedrin. Turn Jesus over. Start this plan in process. Put Jesus to death. Verse 27, Jesus will dip the piece of bread and hand it to Judas in response to John asking, who is it that will betray you? Judas will ask, is it I, Lord? And he will say, that which you do, go and do quickly. The text will say, John the Apostle will say, Satan entered into Judas. He got up and left. I don't know exactly what's going on in the spiritual realm in the upper room, but Satan is somewhere in this room pressing upon the soul of Judas to betray Jesus. There's some serious spiritual warfare happening in this moment in John 13, 1 and 2. And right here in that intense moment of, of spiritual battle, as wicked hatred blossoms out of these deep roots in Judas's heart, about to breed disloyalty and betrayal, what does Jesus do next? What would you do? having all things placed into your hand, having all authority over all things. What did Jesus do? He loves Judas until the end. He is not impatient with Judas. He is not unkind to Judas. He is not arrogant nor rude to Judas. He does not demand his own way or revile Judas in front of the others. Jesus follows his own command from the Sermon on the Mount to love your enemies. And in this upper room, even Judas is loved to the end. Even to the point where he washed the stinky, smelly, dirty feet of this betrayal. Of this satanic imposter. Jesus' love was also then fully aware. You might say, well, of course he did that. He he did that for everybody. He didn't know much about what Judas was doing. Well, you know better than that if you've read the gospel. He knew fully aware what, what Judas planned to do. He knew the hearts of, of the apostles in the room. He knew from the beginning that Judas would betray him. He knew how this would end. He knew all of these men. He knew their weaknesses. He knew their shallow understandings. He knew in a matter of hours they would all fall away from him. He knew once the shepherd was struck, the sheep would scatter, as prophesied in Zechariah. And yet in this motley crew of, of sin-stained men who are full of selfish ambition and a lack of clear understanding, what does Jesus do? As our servant Savior, he loves them to the end, fully, wholly, and completely. So brother or sister, take heart. He has the same love for you. This is the marrow of the gospel. This is the lifeblood of the good news for your soul. He that has so loved you to send his son for you will love you to completion. He who has begun this good work in you will bring it to its end, loving you all the way. Nothing will separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Not tribulation or trial or life or death or principality nor power. 
persecution or trouble. Nothing will keep God's love from you. Nothing will bring it to its end except for the finality of the matter. Bringing you safely home into his presence at peace with him forever. He so loved you that he lived in humble obedience to all that his father commanded him in a world where sin ran amok. He so loved you that he entered in not just as a king but as a servant and slave of all. He so loved you that he took your sins in his body on the tree, suffering under the weight of your curse. He so loved you that suffering under the weight of that curse, he died for you. He so loved you that he drank the cup of God's wrath down to its final drop. Nothing was left for you. God's wrath fully propitiated and satisfied, completely paid. He so loved you that he became sin for you so that you might become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. If he has loved you like this, when will he ever fail you? When will he ever drop you and fail to complete that which he has started in you? Even when you fail him, when you're weak and your love for him, when you lack understanding, when you walk in selfish ambition like the apostles in John 13, even when the casting of Satan into your heart start to lure you away, even there, Jesus loves you completely and wholly to the end. What a Savior. Consider next the supremacy of Jesus, of the Savior. In verse 3, John is going to tell us what Jesus does during dinner, but before that, he has, to, he has to tell us what's going on, the milieu of it, the context of it. So before we hear of Jesus washing the disciples' feet, he has to let us know what Jesus knew. So he tells us in verse 3 that Jesus knew that the Father had given all things into his hand, and that Jesus knew that he was from God and he was going back to God. Why does John tell you that? Why is that here in this text? Why not just go from the, the prologue of verse 1, the context of betrayal in verse 2, right to the washing in verse 4 and 5? Why say to you, this is what Jesus knows before he picks up the towel? Well, I think before he lays out for you how humble Jesus was in his service to the disciples, he wants you to know how supreme Jesus is over his disciples. He has been given everything into his hands. He has the power and the authority in this moment to do as he pleases in any way he pleases. He will say, you remember in just a few hours when he is to be arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane and Peter draws his sword and lops off the ear of, of Pilate's servant, of the high priest's servant, I mean. And remember what Jesus says? Don't do that. Could I not have asked my father and he would have given me 12 legion of angels, a legion being about 6,000 in the Roman army? 12 legions, 12 6,000s worth of angels to come and defend me and to rescue me. He had all authority and power given into his hand. He was supreme over this whole thing. On top of that, he knows that he has come from God and he is going to God. We've talked about this already from John 1. He's co-eternal 
co-equal and co-existent with God. His soon departure will take him through the terrible valley of the death on a cross, but it will lead to his glorious ascension to the right hand of the Father. Jesus knows who he is. He knows where he's from. He knows where he's going. And that is far greater than anything happening in this moment in John 13. Which makes what happens in verse 4 eternally breathtaking. Like we're going to have some aha moments in eternity where we read this text again, having seen the supremacy of Jesus with our own eyes and our highly exalted Lord in heaven when he stands at the center of worship and declared to be worthy is the Lamb who is slain. And we read John 13 again and we say, He did what? He did that? For them? During dinner, he rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taken a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Consider next the humility of the Savior. In light of his supremacy, consider his humility. We get now to the event of what happens. If this was a movie, the, the camera angle would zoom in on Christ as he rises from the table. The speed of the film would slow down to a slower motion. The music would soften and go quieter as we all, with hushed gaze, watch as what our Lord does next. And John communicates this to you by how he belabors the point. He could have said this in a lot fewer words. Jesus got up from dinner, washed their feet, and sat down. But he takes phrase after phrase to say he, he got up from the table and laid aside his outer garments and took a towel and tied it around his waist and poured water in the basin and began to wash their feet and wipe them with a the towel. And then he came to Peter. This is John, I think, standing in amazement again decades later. Playing it through in his own mind's eye of, of what he saw that night. And, and like an eyewitness with the details he saw play out in front of him, he is moved in this moment to, I think, well up with tears as he writes this again. How astounded he is at the, the humility of his Savior to, to get up from the table and do this to serve his disciples. What an astounding expression of the humility of Jesus. Talk much more about this next week, but humility is the queen of all graces. You do not love without humility. You're not kind without humility. You're not gentle without humility. All of them flow from the fountainhead of humility. We see this here with our Lord Jesus in his humility. He, he loves them to the end. And we see from him that humility is not a matter of circumstance, but a matter of heart. It's not a matter of status, but a, a matter of intentionality in heart. Jesus is determined to love his own to the end. And right here in that moment, he seizes upon this teachable moment and he washes 
their feet. You might say, what's so teachable about this moment? Well, let's back up and see what's going on here. The, the washing of feet was for the, the lowest of the low. It was the lowest job for the lowest servant of the house. Jesus will allude to that in verse 10. As they gathered for the Passover meal, they would have washed, they would have bathed themselves. It's kind of like our Christmas gathering. You might only take one shower a year, but you do it before Christmas gathering, right? So to the Jews, you're going to, get to go for Passover, you're going to wash yourself. You're going to bathe yourself and be as, as clean as you can. But walking with sandals on your feet through dusty roads, there's a part of you that's going to be dirty by the time you get to your meal, no matter what you did before. That's what Jesus is going to reference, why their feet are dirty and need cleaned. In Luke's gospel, we're going to find out that as they gathered for the meal, there was an argument among them about who would be greatest in the kingdom of God. Alfred Edersheim, in his book, The Life and Times of Jesus the Messiah, says that he thinks what happened here is they got into the room and they started arguing over who would sit nearest to Jesus. Who would be the honored guest at the Passover meal? Jesus was obviously the host. Remember on Wednesday, he, he sent them to go start preparing the meal. And on Thursday, they went and slaughtered the lamb and got it ready. He was hosting the meal. And so there's an argument over who would sit nearest Jesus. Therefore, who would be greatest in the kingdom? We find out later in John 13 that Judas is actually the one who sits in the seat of honor next to Jesus. And by sit, I mean they lean with their left elbow over a pillow or a divan, leaning up to a short table, feet spread behind them in the Middle Eastern fashion. Judas is to the left of Jesus. We know that because Peter says to John, hey, ask him who it is that's going to betray him. John leans back against his chest. John being to his right says, who is it, Lord? Jesus dips the bread, hands it to Judas, leans back to him and says, what you're doing, go to do quickly. So if it is an argument about who's sitting nearest Jesus, therefore who is greatest in the kingdom, the most proud, most arrogant, most betrayal one among them won the argument and won the spot. Judas himself. That's all conjecture. It's free. Take it for what it's worth. But there's an argument going on. Luke tells us about who is greatest in the kingdom. And in that context, when those disciples refused to get up from the table, take off their outer garments. Apparently there was no servant in the room to do this. And go around and serve others and thereby place themselves at the bottom of the pecking order of everyone else in the room and wash their feet when no one else was willing to do this. The greatest in the room. The one who had been given all things by his father. The one who knew he came from eternity past and was going back to God in eternity future. This one rose and served. In his final hours, don't you think this could have easily been skipped? Do you think the disciples would have remembered in 20 years after this account if they had dirty feet that night? There was a lot of other things to remember other than dirty feet. This was not, in our human view, the most important reality in the room of the upper room. It's a teachable moment. It is not about washing their feet because they're dirty. It's about serving them in humility and showing them the way. It's a picture which lays before them all of the character and nature and work of Jesus. 
It is in this moment as he washes their feet by which he shows them, I am about to do this with my very life. Giving myself for you so that you may be thoroughly and completely washed. And of course, in all of this, who objects? Talk first, think later, Peter. Probably saying what all the other disciples are thinking. Apparently, some of the other disciples had been washed already. Some think Peter was the first one. How John describes it in verse 5, it seems like he had washed others and then came to Peter. It's up for interpretation. As Jesus comes to Peter, Peter says, with emphasis in the original, are you going to wash my feet? It's a comparison statement. And rightly so. Peter understands that Jesus is Lord and he is not. And he is, at least in part in the moment, submitted to Jesus as Lord. How could you possibly, my teacher and Lord, wash my feet? So in in some ways, that's the right response. Peter gripped with the realities of the moment, aghast at what Jesus is doing. Jesus responds with the assurance of increased understanding, which this promise is rightly applied by the church to all Christians of all age. You do not yet understand this now, but later you will. This is so much the way of Jesus, so patient with us. So many things we have yet to understand in our comprehension of the revelation of God in his word. And how gracious of the Lord to keep moving us along, keep serving us in our journey, keep loving us to the end, and keep progressively revealing more of his truth to us. He says the same thing to Peter. In just a few minutes, he's going to explain to Peter and to all the apostles what he meant. He's going to ask them, do you understand, knowing they don't? And he's going to explain to them what it all means. But he, he means more than this. He, Jesus means that it's going to take more than me even just telling you for you to get it. You're going to have to see my bloodied body on the cross dying for you. You're going to have to touch my wounded yet healed body after the resurrection. You're going to have to watch me ascend to the right hand of the Father. You're going to have to receive the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. He's going to have to teach you and lead you into all things for you to grasp the significance of what this means. And this is yet another display of the humility of Christ. Not impatient with his disciples who simply cannot understand, hard-headed, self-willed, unwilling to let him have his way. He mercifully responds and says, Peter, you don't get it yet, but you will. That's the humility of Jesus. But even to that, Peter rejects, and we, we see here the cleansing power of the Savior. Beginning in verse 8, his objection intensifies. He uses the double negative in the Greek, ume, strongest possible word you can in the original language to say, no, never. You will not do this to me. He combines it with an eternal word. He says, no, never to the ages. It's as strong a way as possible for Peter to say, this is never happening. I don't care what you say or what you do, Lord, this is not happening. I don't care if I'll understand it now or in 500 years, you're not doing it. Jesus responds to Peter and says to him, if I don't wash you, you have no part with me. If I don't wash you, you have no part with me. Jesus is obviously speaking of something far greater than washing feet, isn't he? This is not about getting a part of Peter's body wet with water and washing it, rinsing it off with a towel. 
He's speaking about receiving the humble service of the Messiah. This is, this is about submitting to and fully accepting what he alone can do to cleanse us, to make us acceptable, to have a part in his eternal inheritance. Peter responds to that in verse 9 with this typical pendulum swing to the other extreme. He says, oh, well, not just my feet then, but also my hands and my head. Notice how Peter wants to still dictate the terms to his Lord. He calls him Lord, but he doesn't treat him like Lord, does he? Sound familiar? Do you know that in your heart? I know at first you're like, yeah, this guy next to me. No, you. You see yourself here, right? How quick we are to say to the Lord, yes, Lord, but this way. No, like by saying Lord, we're saying your way, correct? He gets to determine the terms and the method. Peter still wants to be in charge of what's going on, still wants to control how this is going to happen. Jesus responds in verse 10, such clarity again, says to him, if you're already bathed, you don't need to be washed again. He only needs his feet clean. Referring back to them, preparing for the Passover, getting their feet dirty on the way. He says to them, you, at the end of verse 11 is plural, you are all clean. Therefore, you don't need to be washed again. But not every one of you. Jesus is here obviously talking about something more than just physical washing, isn't he? He says, you're all clean, but not every one of you. Well, he washed all their feet. So if he's talking about washing their feet, then they're all clean. He means something more here. He's talking about spiritual realities, obviously. John lets us know in verse 11, the interpretive help here, that Jesus said that because there was one of them that Jesus knew was about to betray him. So this whole exchange is is deeper than the washing of feet. He's clearly speaking about washing of heart and of soul. Eleven of his disciples in that room are clean in that way, but one of them is not. And that will soon be seen as he leaves to betray his Lord. Jesus is here using the physical expression of foot washing to point to the spiritual reality of the filth of sin that needs cleansing. David says it in Psalm 51, verse 2, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. 1 Corinthians 6, when Paul is talking about those who will not inherit the kingdom of God because of how they continue walking in, this, in sin, he says, and such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Paul says to Titus in Titus 3, verse 4, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us not by works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Hebrews 10, the author calls us to draw near to Christ, to our high priest. He says, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. 
1 John 1, number 7, this apostle in his first letter says, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Friends, this is the outworking of the gospel. The marrow of the gospel is the love of Christ for you. The application of that good news, of that gospel to you is that you will be cleansed by this Jesus who loves you. Sin mars the soul with a filth and a residue and an ickiness that will never be taken away but by the shed blood of Jesus the Christ. And he says to Peter in verse 8, if you do not do this, you have no part with me. You're not one of mine if you will not submit to my humble service to you. And Judas really is exhibit A of the negative alternative, right? He stands as one of the starkest warnings on the pages of Scripture. Like a lighthouse beaming its warning signal so that you don't crash on the same rocky shore. Judas' story screams to you about the dangers of betrayal, about the casting work of Satan into the wicked hearts of unbelieving men and women. Judas is clear proof of very difficult truths. Truths like this. No amount of head knowledge about our Savior, absent of grace, guarantees that you have a part with Christ. That no experience of immense privilege, like being in the upper room with Jesus, can save you. That no, no right, like being at the first Lord's Supper, or having your feet washed by the Savior, even those things cannot guarantee your eternal salvation apart from faith and grace. And see, there must be an internal cleansing that comes by faith in Christ. You must receive this servant Savior who in all humility serves you by cleansing you with his shed blood. If he does not wash you, you have no part with him. So friend, do you know the cleansing power of Jesus? He does not need to wash your feet for you to have eternal life and the forgiveness of sins. He needs to wash your soul, the cleansing power of his shed blood for you. This is received by faith. Just like Peter had to come to the point where he received by faith that the Lord knew what he was doing, accepted it on the Lord's terms, and received what the Lord offered. So you too must receive what the Lord offers to you in eternal life, saving you from your sin by the sacrifice of himself. How about you, brother or sister? Having been cleansed, do you see more of the glory of your Savior in John 13? Where has the Lord gripped you with the love of Christ and the supremacy of Christ and the humility of Christ and the cleansing power of Christ? Hallelujah. What a Savior. I think it would be appropriate this morning for us to gather around the Lord's table. Obviously, I've thought about that before now because we're ready for it because our elders graciously served us in that way. What a great text to move from preaching to pondering. To consider the great work of Christ to cleanse us from our sins. 
in the upper room, Jesus established this ordinance with his disciples. He laid before them how this should go in the church for the ages until he returns. In John's gospel, he started at a meal with his disciples at a wedding feast. He ends with a meal with his disciples in the upper room. This points us to that glorious day when upon his return, we will feast with him. And Luke 22 says he will serve us as he served his apostles. What a savior. As we come to the table, I want to just point you to two things to help you think deeply and worship truly. The first is, in John, we don't have an account of the Lord's Supper being established, of Jesus saying, this broken bread and this cup point to me, and therefore you should do this until I come. Why does John leave that out in his gospel? Some would say because the other three covered it. He didn't need to. I think there's more going on here. He writes a couple of decades after the other apostles. And I think already by then the church had come to the table as a ritual, as a rite, as a a matter of attaining grace. As though somehow by doing this they were receiving further cleansing or accomplishing more of their salvation. So John makes clear to them through Judas' example that you can participate at the table and be as lost as Judas. The table does not guarantee your salvation. You need to be cleansed by the Savior that the table remembers so that you might have part with him. So if you're cleansed from your sin by the saving work of Christ, you're invited to the table with us. It's a table of of remembrance and of joy. You have much to remember and much to take joy in. Second thing I want to point point out to you from John 13 is the ongoing need for washing I think that's what John says in his first letter in John 1, 1 John 1, 9. He says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You've been washed. You're ready for the feast. But in sandals on dirty roads, your feet get dirty. Sin still is a struggle and a problem for you and you need your feet washed regularly. But the same cleansing power of your Savior. You have part with him, but you need further cleaning and the beauty of the Lord's table is that it's a a regular checkpoint for you to see and do business before the Lord with your heart we gather on this table as about a motley crew as what Jesus had in the upper room maybe more so we're just sinners saved by grace and we bring a whole bunch of mess to this table a whole bunch of selfish ambition a whole bunch of pride a whole bunch of seeking our own interests. And all of that can be cleansed by our Savior. So I encourage you in the minutes to come, the moments to come, to to do business. Use this as a checkpoint. Examine your soul before the Lord. Ask the Lord like Psalm 51. The psalmist says, search me and know me. Try me and see if there be any wicked way in me. And where the Lord shows you that your feet are dirty, ask him to cleanse you by his powerful blood. Let's go ahead and pray quietly, silently by ourselves. I'm gonna ask the men who are serving to join me around the table.